All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sex Sales Podcast, the podcast where we talk about culture, relationships, and society from a male and a female perspective. No announcements again on this podcast. We're going to get straight into it today. We're talking about head thinkers versus heart thinkers. So uh, when you think of a head thinker, you're usually probably thinking of someone like me, uh, people who like to analyze everything and try to be as rational as they possibly can and can sometimes come across as robotic or mechanical and lacking empathy, but then uh, at the same time can be very effective in, say, managerial positions and often are the inventors of certain things and um, can do very well in their professional life. And then we have heart thinkers. So these are people Me. who are generally high in empathy and that's not to say what I said before means they're excluded from performing really well yeah. in a uh, professional or a corporate environment. These are people who connect really well with other people. They're very socially intelligent, emotionally intelligent. And yeah, you might you might think of uh, Eliza. And uh, I just read a book called The Essential Difference by Simon Baron Cohen. I mentioned this, I think, two podcasts ago, mm. and his main hypothesis was that the male brain is generally wired for systemizing, and that's probably a technical term for being a head thinker, and the female brain is generally wired for empathizing, and then he just sort of goes through that across the chapters. And you know what? It was a compelling read. I don't know if I'm entirely convinced. I think there's a lot of crossover and a lot of social influence that comes into play. But I wanted to do this podcast because I think there is a disconnect when someone who's, I suppose, high in head thinking communicates with someone who is high in, in heart thinking or someone who's high in systemizing communicates with someone who's high in mm. empathizing. And, of course, it goes without saying, uh, yeah, look, we a lot of people say generally men tend to be more along the, the head thinking yeah. route and, and vice versa, but there's like I said, plenty of crossover and talking about a country like Australia where there's around 26 million people, there's likely millions who don't necessarily fit that description. So just a, a more uh, formal definition of each. Uh, empathizing is the drive to identify another person's emotions and thoughts and to respond to them with an appropriate emotion. Do you agree with that definition? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <laughs> and then for systemizing, they've got systemizing is the drive to analyze, explore, and construct a system. The systemizer intuitively figures out how things work or extracts the underlying rules that govern the behavior of a system. And even as succinct a, a, a description like that was so relatable. That's all I ever try to do all the time is just try to find out the underlying rules mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in topics that generally people who are higher in empathy would be interested in, the arts, creativity, yeah. human behavior, communication. But where I come out, come at it with a point of difference is I'm constantly trying to understand the rules governing, say, human behavior or uh, artistic prowess or whatever it may be. And there can be a, a disconnect when you're, when you're communicating with someone I mean, in, in some of the early podcasts we did, there was some uh, definitely aw more awkward moments. Yeah, 
Yeah. But we seem to come to uh, an understanding of how we can sort of move through that. And I think it, obviously it became a lot better as a result. Mm. And mm. you're seeing this on a mass scale now where uh, th- there's social media, even though we're in this world of um, we're more interconnected than ever, the, the, the social media bifurcation due to people just sort of interacting with other people who agree with them or have a likeness to them. Mm has, if anything, actually caused a greater rift between systemizers and empathizers. And you can even see this on different social media platforms. YouTube now seems to have become a source of just information. There's video essays Mm. everywhere and it does seem to be a predominantly male audience on that platform. And TikTok is very different. uh, The best TikToks are the ones where you can see someone's face directly and they actually recommend that. And it's in my best estimation, a point of social connection that you can Mm. generate when you see someone's face and you're making eye contact with them there. And there uh, often can be um, confusion and and conflict between head thinkers and heart thinkers where heart thinkers can often think head thinkers come across as very cold, callous, unloving, lacking empathy. And similarly, head thinkers can... uh, construe a lot of the communication of heart thinkers as childish, self-absorbed, unnecessary, or sometimes even narcissistic. And what I think is actually lacking is is not necessarily empathy, but an understanding of how each other's brains operate. So if someone actually, their, their brain is wired differently and in that they can't, they can't experience empathy to the same effect as someone else. How much can you shame them? How much can we sort of judge them for maybe not empathizing on a, whether it's a political issue or a personal issue, an interpersonal relationship issue, something something like that? I, I was thinking about this the other day. Maybe the best way to describe it could be like empathy is obviously a skill. It's something you can get better at. You can work on and better understand other people's emotions and their motivations and where they may be coming from. But I think some people may be gen- genetically predisposed to uh, harnessing that skill and, and um, having a better capacity for that skill in the same way some people can do physical work and get strong and improve their physical strength. But there are some people who just genetically are always going to be stronger than others regardless of how much each other you know lift weights or you know do physical work or whatever like i i'm probably someone like that you know i could work out as much as i want but you know there'd be other men out there who might just be uh born with a with a just far more pronounced genetic window of how um strong they're capable of becoming and they could be training you know 10 percent as much as i myself uh but they're always going to be stronger and the, the point i'm trying to make is that I don't think the, 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 the skill of empathizing is entirely socially malleable. And there are some people who just just cannot empathize to the same degree as other, other people. Yeah, 100%. And how many times have – you wouldn't believe how many women have said to me, I think my boyfriend's autistic. Well, that's the other thing, yeah. Then there's the- <laughs> like so many – crazy and I'm like you know maybe he is but I don't think every single every second man is autistic um 
which a lot of people just seem to think is what's happening um, because they associate the not having the same degree of empathy and softness as autism um, or a lack of understanding of someone's emotions. So it is a really interesting concept. And I um, I actually did a course on this um, years ago where I flew to Melbourne and it was called, um, it was part of my life coaching course and it's called Multiple Brain Integration Techniques or MBIT. And it was one of those things where it was part of a two-year course I was doing and I didn't actually want to do this one because it seemed really um, focused. It was a bit too hippie for me or so it seemed. And no, if it's the too hippie for you, it, that's saying something. I know. <laughs> and the purpose of it is it was like it's supposed to be ways to integrate your heart, your head and and in this one, your gut brain. So they would say the three brains that you need to integrate to become more of like decision-making, holistic, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, this is going to be boring. I don't want to do it. And I like the whole like connect with your heart kind of like I didn't – yeah, for me it was too hippie. Um, but what was really fascinating is the way that the therapy works is you're put into a state of um, – a combination of basically meditation and hypnosis. However, you're getting prompted with specific questions. Um, and then the what answers um, you that you come out with are a reflection of your subconscious. And this is what I found really fascinating because through this course I discovered, well, I, I didn't discover, but I obviously um, confirmed I was heavily a heart thinker and a lot of my decisions and beliefs, everything comes from my heart. Um, and even just one way of telling is a heart thinker often has their hands right in front of their chest or chots their chest a lot, which I always do. Um, and this Therapy is in the state of meditation hypnosis, you go in and you talk to or check in and feel and connect with your heart center, your brain center and your gut center, right? And I, before I had the practitioner practice it on me, they were like, think of something that you feel conflicted about, torn about, a decision you need to make, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I had nothing. I was drawing up blanks. I was like, everything's cruisy for me. I don't have a decision or a conflict or anything to even do this with. I can't make one up. I don't know what to do. The only thing I could think of last minute is I had broken up with my boyfriend like a year ago and he'd moved back to Canada. And then he had told me, um, I'm still in love with you. I'm coming back to Australia to be with you. And we were like, that was like one of those passionate toxic loves. And I was so excited for him to come back. I was like, this means everything. And when I went to do this course, I w- he, he was a week from coming back um, home to me and I was beside myself with excitement. Anyway, so I was like, this is the only thing going on in my life. So I'll do this. And what was I found fascinating is I went into the state of meditation quite quickly and they were asking me questions and it took me like I was cringe for like two seconds when they were like checking with your heart thing. But then I was answering things and saying things in each, like when I spoke from my heart, which is what they do first, Even it sounds cringe even explaining it. But when I spoke from my heart, I was speaking how I would speak now. I had the same thoughts. I was really excited, blah, blah, blah. Then when I went in subconsciously accessing or embracing my heart, my head brain, 
of my gut brain, I had completely different responses coming out of my mouth that I was shocking myself with as I was saying them that I wasn't even consciously connected to. I hadn't even thought these things before. And then I was like, did I just make this up for the sake of this practice? I'm so like confused because I, when I went to my head, I was saying logistically, this relationship isn't going to work out. This is what's going to happen. This isn't healthy. And I came out of it feeling like really disoriented. And anyway, what ended up happening was every single thing <laughs> that my head brain was telling me ended up being a hundred percent true um, and coming true. So this is like kind of irrelevant, even though it worked for me and it worked for everyone there, it's still like a very like hippy dippy practice. But my point is, is that people that were led by their head or led by their heart or led by their gut had completely different approaches to life and decision-making and what they thought was important or how they approached conflict resolution Etc. And one thing I've learned um, throughout the duration of my study, etc., I'm really actually interested in head thinkers and heart thinkers. I'm excited that we're doing this today because I've had to adapt to when I communicate with someone, I always observe whether they're a heart thinker and whether they're a head thinker. And once I've got that down packed, I communicate with them in a way that they're going to, it's going to be more impactful for them. So in some ways it might not seem genuine because it might be like, well, I'm not speaking my truth from my heart or whatever, but I am, but in a way that they are going to understand it better. So like a really like cliche example would be, say I'm a heart thinker and Adrian's a head thinker and I'm saying, I feel sad when you do X, Y, Z. Instead, I might change that. Um, and in and, and me saying I feel sad or it makes me feel so shitty when you do this or it makes me angry, me saying that is trying to get them to an elicit an emotional response like guilt, shame or empathy for me in order to change that behavior. And this is what a, a lot of women fall into this trap where they're trying to communicate something with their partner and they're trying to elicit that emotional response so that they change because that's how we would typically change our behavior when we feel bad about something. So we would change it. But instead, what I learned and practice is if they are a heart thinker, I would say like in order for our relationship to be a more um, safe or loving relationship, this is what I need for you. And this is why I need it. And like providing the literal reasoning behind it. And it, it was a thousand times more effective than me subconsciously trying to make them feel bad to change their behavior. I presented the facts to them, the evidence and the incentive for why this behavior or whatever needs to be changed um, in a way that is better understood and interpreted by them and taken on board by them, even though the message is still the same. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so simple yet so effective. And I think yeah. the world would uh, benefit from that sort of insight because what you tend to see on social media and even in traditional media is a conflict between people who are head thinkers and heart thinkers. And there are a lot of uh, intellectual shows where they'll have two people butt heads and someone is making an emotional point the other person is arguing with them from a rational point of view and it just doesn't work it, it that, that rational point of view will appeal to a certain amount of people the emotional point of view will appeal to a certain amount of people and they'll both not understand each other and it's a terrible 
way in which we can fall into a trap of not communicating effectively. And I strive to 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 do what you do as well. And I um I think naturally I'm more inclined to be a a head thinker. But yeah. uh, if I'm communicating with someone who comes across as more of a heart thinker, uh, I'll definitely soften my language and not necessarily be as direct and not even use the sort of um, language I may use with uh, uh, a, a head thinker. And it will be more about connecting with them on an emotional level rather than discussing various ideas with them. Mm. And, you know, you see a lot about, say, the, de- the devil's advocate on on TikTok. There's this trend where, um, you know, debating and devil's ad- playing devil's advocate is just a sign of a toxic man and things like that. But a head thinker doesn't see it that way. The head thinker is actually, I would even argue, to devil's advocate on a contentious issue is actually a way to empathize with people who have that different point of view because what you're trying to do is understand how they got to that perspective and point of view and you do that by adopting their position and trying to argue from that their perspective and um i think that's where people misconstrue that where they think oh you're just being an edgelord and trying to upset me for the sake of it when Maybe there are some there are some you know what they call debate bros who who just want to be argumentative for the sake of it. But I know when I'm trying to say uh, if if you know if I'm discussing something with uh, my my partner or a friend and I'm the first person to say if they if they've made a point I'll say okay well um so maybe I'll say something like some people would say this or. Um, I, I don't directly say to play devil's advocate anymore because I know that's just certain um, stereotypes that people often conjure up, but I'll say, okay, a lot of people might think this. What do you think of that? And I'm not – from what how that can come across to a lot of hard thinkers, at least from my experience, is that you're just being unnecessarily combative and you're not engaging with the emotional reality of the situation right there. And people – can think of you as just like I said, cold, callous, lacking empathy. But I mm. just, uh, I would, I would encourage anyone who might be a heart thinker to, to see it from that other perspective. But at the same time, there's also a sense of emotional decorum that head thinkers might need to learn and practice. And yeah. isn't yeah. this isn't this so interesting? Because you know, heart heart thinkers might be more influenced by the most powerful emotional anecdote in changing their mind about something. So if we're talking about a political issue or just a, an issue in an organization and someone can express themselves in a, in a in an emotional way that tugs at the heartstrings, uh, a heart thinker might be convinced by that. Yeah. Whereas a head thinker needs to see trends or needs to see some sort of evidence or needs to see, I guess, more collective means of ascertaining what the appropriate position could be. Um, yeah. And then you see that with a lot of, say, so, you know, social justice rhetoric where the, on on certain shows in Australia, Q&A is, is a prime example. They'll, they'll bring on someone who has a really heartfelt story of how maybe they've experienced racism or maybe they have endured some sort of hardship and it clearly tugs at people's heartstrings. And they connect with that emotionally and often will go viral and it will convince people 
of a certain position on a particular issue. Whereas, you know, to me, I, it's not like I don't connect with those emotions. I absolutely can empathize with someone like that. But what I can't do is take that next step into a conclusion about the world at large because what mm -hmm. someone may have personally experienced does not give me enough insight to make a conclusion about the world at large. And, you know, that's caused a lot of conflict in um, maybe other relationships I've had. Uh, but th th I suppose that's where I'm coming from there. I, I just, I'm, uh, if anything, it's a wariness to, of uh, manipulation maybe, because if, if you're simply, uh, if you are not led by emotions at all, it creates just a cold person who just it struggles to connect with people. But sometimes if you're, say, an empath, uh, which I don't know if that's a real thing, but people who are just highly empathetic, you can be very easily manipulated because then yeah. someone who is just the most uh, effective at toying with your emotions can convince you of something and convince you that they are in need the most when they may not be in need the most, but they're just the most effective at communicating things emotionally. So um, mm. it's this whole quandary uh, of d different perspectives of communication that seem to be really prevalent right now. And, and, and my, and the last thing I'll say is that I, 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 I couldn't help but think, okay, what is a huge thing that young boys are doing now? They're playing video games and that's teaching them to systemize. They're not interacting with people socially on a face-to-face -face level. They're thinking about the rules of a system and how to beat the next level and achieve, you know, the goal and that's how they attain status and that's sort of seeping into their subconscious even though they know, all right, this isn't real. And a lot of young girls are spending a lot of time on social media having to traverse the world of cyberbullying, of name-calling, of shaming, of uh, physical insecurities. And this could be uh, exacerbating their, their or, you know, already um, potentially biological urges to be empathetic. And similarly with boys, it could be just exacerbating their um, predisposition to be a systemizer. And, and maybe that, that could be where you see a further separation between the the sexes or, you know, people who played a lot of video games in their youth compared to people who spend most of their time on mm, other forms of social media in their youth because they've, in, in that formative period of adolescence, they've changed their brain chemistry and, and further become a systemizer or an empathizer. And I can't see how that's healthy if, if there's just these two groups of people that can't communicate with each other. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about how... Um I went through this stage of being obsessed recently, like in the last few years on and off with this video game arc where you um, like tame dinosaurs and fight and build like you survive basically where dinosaurs exist. And I played with Adrian and Adrian always wanted to go out and hunt shit and like <laughs> fight with other clans. And I was like so attached to these dinosaurs. <laughs> I just didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to feed them, keep them in their little home and just have them there and adopt all the ones I could find. It was, yeah, it's funny, like different type of approach that um, he and I had to that. But I think like a really good example as well is I was drawn to veganism um, at a young age because of feeling empathetic for animals. When I watched like a video of like what pigs went through, blah, 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 traumatized. Um, 
So I went vegan. It was as simple as that. And it's easy for me to stay vegan because I just have to think about it for a millisecond. And then um, I, yeah, I'm reinforced in my beliefs. But with a lot of people, that doesn't, they can see a pig get slaughtered and be like, that's the circle of life. That's nature. This is the food chain. And they don't, that's not distressing to them at all. And there's this um, YouTuber, TikTok or whatever, he's like super influential in the like vegan sphere called Earthling Ed. And he debates with people about veganism and he can basically win any argument. And he's a, he, on pure logic. He doesn't talk about the animals suffer. He doesn't talk about this. He talks about the impact on the environment. He talks about deforestation. He talks about carcinogenic and like health and all these things. And he literally can can fight with or debate with anyone just based on facts. And he has every single study, every single research, every single stat off the top of his head ready to go. And it's amazing like how his approach is so impactful when he talks and communicates and debates with men because they're like, oh, shit, yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, so it's really interesting in that way. And when we talked about – when you mentioned like heart people are more likely to be prone to being manipulated, taken advantage of, it's 100% true. And for me, even I, – I feel like I have a very good read and understanding of people and I don't let, allow myself to get – manipulated ever. I've got really strong boundaries and I know when people are lying to me or using me, blah, blah, blah. But I literally think so highly of everyone I meet and I just genuinely basically like every single person I've ever met. So when I know that those things are happening or I'm prone to that person doing that to me, um, I, it, it, it almost doesn't impact me because I'll still think highly of them or I'll be like, well, this happened kind of thing. And my friend and I were talking about this the other day, how she's like a forgive and never forget type of person. And I'm a forgive and immediately forget <laughs> type of person. Just let it go as soon as they say like, sorry, or apologize to me, which has its pros and it has its cons, obviously like massive cons. And we talked like, you know, we've mentioned a couple of things about, um, the the downside of um of heart thinkers and i think that even though we mentioned that head thinkers can come across as cold or callous or whatever i think one big detriment to a head thinker is the lack of in their communication the lack of validation to someone when they're talking about how they're feeling um or just like an example off the top of my head my friend was talking to her partner a male um about how the you know women are Basically, all women have experienced sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, violence, these kind of things. And he was like, and she was talking about her personal experience with it. And he was like, yeah, I know that that's like everyone you, you've gone through that and everyone you know that, but maybe that's just like your circle of friends. And he wouldn't take her at her word for it until she had to get up data, research, <laughs> stats, um, documentaries to talk about the lived experience from a woman because he wouldn't take the word of a lived experience from a woman, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and I said, well, you know, there's pros and cons to that because now he's educated and now he understands and he can't, like he was afterwards, He there was no rebuttal. He was like, well, fuck. But she was like, 
when I talk about things that are personal, he invalidates it unless there I can provide the literal evidence for it. And it drives me insane. (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, there's definitely, obviously there's pros and cons to everything. And then there's a third party, which are gut people and people that go purely by their gut instinct on things. And that can be impacted drastically by your childhood and your trauma. If you have trauma in your childhood, you are much less likely to trust people. You might find them untrustworthy. And when I put this poll up the other day, on my Instagram about icks and saying like, what is your ick? And I had so many stupid people, like stupid responses, sorry, um, that were really funny of what people find as icks, like someone put when you um, take a deep breath before going underwater, (laughs) stuff like that. But a lot of men kept replying saying like women that have, that use um, icks as a reason to not commit in a relationship. And that's actually a really, really valid point. And that would come from, and sometimes it would come from your trauma, making you feel that adults or people cannot be trusted or your experiences or previous relationships. So you're subconsciously finding reasons to be turned off or disgusted by someone. Um, But then the pro of gut people is that their gut instinct can be so like on point that they don't have to find the logical understanding of it. There is something beneath even further than the the rational logic that is intrinsic in their body, subconsciously, subconsciously pushing a message out and they just go by it and trust it. And it's so often it's right. And my, one of my best friends is a gut, um, a gut, gut girl, um, that got definitely led by her gut and, there's been so many times where like I'd go on a date with a guy cause we lived together and um, he'd come home and she'd be like, I don't have a good feeling. Absolutely not. And I'd be like, what? He's funny. What do you mean? And every single time she was right. My gut instinct was always so off and hers was always so, so on point. And then my third friend who was a head thinker, she'd be like, well, is he nice to you? And does he do this? And does he have a job? And like, that's how she's analyzing whether or not it, it it is a suitable candidate. And I was going off, well, I find him funny and affectionate and it makes me feel good. (laughs) So I'm going to keep dating him. Um, which is a funny little, like anecdotal thing about how the different interpretations and what we value as well can be different amongst head thinkers and heart thinkers. You might value different things. Um, but yeah, it's, it is really interesting. And I think that it's really essential that we not only just learn to communicate effectively with, you know, other heart or first head people, but also understand them better or understand, can you integrate more of that within yourself? Like I've had to practice so hard over the years to become more of a logical thinker and more of a head thinker. And I would say that when I used to be a hundred percent heart, I'm probably like 70, 30 now, but I'm pretty happy with that balance where I've really had to integrate more head thinking into my life and making decisions based on that. Um, and I was looking up stats on this earlier to see like, are there any stats present about heart and head thinkers? And there were surprisingly, although this survey, um, or this, this research was done with only like a thousand, um, people. So it's not like the biggest sample, but, um, 
It was done by the Medical Alert Buyers Guide and they did um, they were polled about their head and heart decisions um, and it said that 79% of people said that they were head people and 21% said they were heart people um, and 68% of people agreed that following one's heart when making business decisions cloud judgment, 64% believe that following one's head over heart is pivotal to success um, those that follow their heads have an average salary that is 13% higher than those that follow their hearts. 16% of people changed careers because they regretted following their heart, while 15% <laughs> did because of their head. And then one last one, though, was of the 1,011 people that were um, surveyed, 60% of those who followed their heart said they're more satisfied with their current job compared to 50% that went through their head. Mm. Um, so there was a little bit interesting and also under time pressure, people are more likely to make risky decisions when they're feeling happy than when they're feeling sad. That was interesting. Mm. Yeah. They're they're very interesting and, and they're also self-reported though because mm. I, I think there's this stereotype of, of a certain group of people who think, you know, I'm a logical thinker and I don't make emotional decisions. It's just not true. We're all on some sort of scale and yeah. emotions dictate your uh, rationality more than you realise. There's a great book by, well, Jonathan Haidt talks about this a lot, but he yeah. was also quoting another book where they use um, an elephant and a rider, and then they're not sure whether the you know it's a sort of metaphor as to whether the the little person at the top, which sort of um, symbolizes the brain, is is controlling the elephant, or is it that the elephant just sort of goes where it wants, and then that person mm. in a split second is sort of following them and and thinking they're the one in charge, and we don't really know. It's likely an interplay between both, and um, some people just seem to be able to either suppress the uh, heart thinking or are just not as in touch with it and vice versa. Um, yeah. I know my my strategy is, is seems – and, and not, not so much a conscious strategy but what how I've uh, come about to treat this is that on a one-on-one -on -one level in any kind of interpersonal relationships, I – and lead with my heart. I'm I'm very empathetic, and I really want to validate everyone and make yeah. sure they're in because that's what I think you need in a one-on-one -on -one, mm. in a partnership. Um, as you just broaden the involvement of people in whatever the organization might be or whatever the circumstance may be, whether this is conscious or not, I just naturally move towards more systemizing. So. Uh, it's not a, a large company by any means, but I'm now sort of managing a few people and, and a few shows, uh, <laughs> companyuntamed.com, come along. And I have to be a head thinker there because if I am a heart thinker, um, there are people who have different ideas and, and they're very passionate about those ideas, but they may conflict with someone else. And I have to just sort of, mm. in a way, invalidate someone's ideas or, you know, support it to a degree but still push back on it and go with someone else's. And I just yeah. can't see how you can, as as a system gets larger, I can't see how it's one of those things where you need a basic level of empathy but mm -hmm. then the ability to systemize then comes into it. Uh, but then what you have is, is, you know, these tech billionaires who are just 
well, seemingly extraordinarily high systemizers and just Mm -hmm. lacking any kind of empathy at all. Um, Just from podcasts, you look at Mark Zuckerberg, you're like, this guy has never felt an emotion in his life. It could just be the way he presents. I don't know. Um, And so that's, I guess, how I see it. But then when we're talking about ideas in the abstract, so particularly if we're talking about politics or uh, even just culture, religion, economics, things like that, that's when I'm just, I'm totally uh, a head thinker. I I can't even, because, you know, if you're having an argument between, I don't know, like communism and capitalism, like I don't even know where the heart could could go in something like that. It's a totally abstract mm. discussion there. But what does happen, and coming back to the validation thing, I think it's super important that people who are more um, inclined to be head thinkers can learn that skill of emotional validation for other people. But for just in personal uh, instances, I've found that by validating someone, you can't, you, you know, sometimes you may actually disagree with their version of events or you may mm. not agree with their conclusions. So a, a totally extreme example would be someone like, okay, they cheated on a partner and they were, you know, the 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 poor moral actor in a situation. They did it, they ghosted them, they cheated on them, let's just say they've done all these things. And then they come to you really upset. Well, what do you, you know, you want to validate that they're a close friend of yours. You want to validate their emotions. You want to say, hey, look, you know, I can understand that you're upset. You've lost someone that you love and I'm here for you. But, and, you know, it's it's an issue of timing more than anything. But at the same time, if they're then saying I gave them everything and I did all these things and in your mind you're like, well, you, no, you did. I, <laughs> I don't think you acted morally in this situation. I don't agree with your conclusions. I can I can connect with your emotions and validate them, but I can't agree with the conclusions you're making from those emotions. And that's where you get into really treacherous territory. And that's where I think a lot of conflicts come up because uh, someone will 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 be in a in a an emotional state and you and you doing everything you can to validate them, but they might be saying something like, oh, and and this is why um this this company is garbage and I don't, I don't look I, I can't think of a specific ideal example for this but basically they're making conclusions about maybe other people or an organization or even the world and you may not agree with that you may think well actually no I think the boss did the right thing in firing you but you know you obviously it's a can't necessarily say that um and to me that is a minefield and I wonder if you have any um, yeah. thoughts on on those specific situations where you want to validate their emotions but you don't want to validate the conclusions or the the narrative that they've developed from those emotions well one thing I will say is that in the situation of like people that have cheated in that scenario say if I were approached and someone was talking about that to me my me as a heart thinker, my empathy goes immediately to the person that was betrayed. And so I might actually not be validating my friend or whatever, because I might even be like, well, this is not a friendship I want to sustain. I probably wouldn't do that. This is just, you know, worst case scenario. I might be like, I don't want to be around someone like you because what you've done to your partner, like my heart might be projected to them rather than the person that's approached me does that make sense yeah but what if they're really in a state of distress what if say someone has you you know i know you've dealt with 
troubled children yeah, yeah. and things that they've done, they've, they've committed a crime, but then they're just there, they're crying and they're just in one of those heightened states of distress where, I don't know, maybe I'm a, maybe I am an empath, but I can't, you know, yeah. I, I, you, you want to yeah. hug someone when they're like that, yeah. even if they've just beaten someone up or something like that. It's a, it's a, what would you so do true. there? Um, that's happened to me many times where a child has committed a, <laughs> a crime and then come to me. Um, and it's, I, yeah, now that you put it in that way, I a hundred percent am there to hold the space for them. And I will try to calm them down by not saying it's okay. Like mistakes happen. I'll be like, you know what, John, like you fucked up big time and we're going to put the pieces together. We're going to figure it out. This is how we're going to start it. Like, let's get some sleep tonight. Let's get some food in you. And then we're going to, I'm going to come back in the morning and we're going to work through this. I'm going to call your psychologist. I'm going to do this. I'm going to call your school. Like here's the action plan. And that in itself is a way of offering empathy that it takes some of the burden off them that, okay, someone is looking after me. Someone is going to hold me in this place. Someone is going to support me through this. And there's an action plan towards it whilst not validating the crime or actions that they've committed as such. Mm. Um, so there is, there, it, and it is hard because there have 100% been times in my youth, like when I was working younger at like 20 with teens where I wanted to validate them for literally anything they did. But I found that challenging someone gently is so essential to growth and putting responsibility on them as well. Um, like the kids and families I work with, almost all of them have a lot of trauma and a lot of these behaviors and actions and, or crimes that they commit may stem from trauma. But I can't allow and empathize with someone where they've which has happened, you know, sexually assaulted a young girl because of their trauma. I can understand why it happened, but I can't be like, that's okay. You had this, this happened to you and your parents abandoned. No, like it's about, okay, we've got to go have this interview with the police. We've got to do this. Um, I'll be here every single day working on this with you. So yeah, that combination of it's tough love almost like it's assertive, firm, support but it's not justification and it is I will always try to ensure that that young person or that individual is taking responsibility and a really good example of this I have I don't know if you've watched this but I've been watching ultimatum queer love on Netflix and I think I spoke about this on our last podcast where it's like they have to decide are they going to get married or are they going to um split up and so they date other partners and there's this one couple where it's um their name there's Ozzy and um the wife is called Sam and Ozzy who is um they're in a lesbian relationship Ozzy is like so frustrating to watch the entire show because they keep every single time their their trial wife or partner says, you know, I'm really struggling with something. I want to communicate with you. Ozzy is like, don't blame me. And then leaves and walks out before the conversation has even started. And I was like, oh my God, can this person just not run away and sit and have a conversation for once? And I was getting myself so like frustrated at them. And then in one of the more like recent episodes, Ozzy has like this huge meltdown screaming crying on the sound on the side of the road being like 
every as a child I was blamed for everything this is why I can't communicate because I cannot feel like I'm to blame I can't do a conflict and they're crying they're like screaming and I just felt so much empathy for not that not only that they had you know experienced that um in their childhood and understanding why they like that but the fact that they were having like a, it's one of the biggest meltdowns I've ever seen, like being filmed on TV and they're not like reality TV stars. They've been there for three weeks. And the fact that that was filmed for all of their coworkers to see, their family to see in such a vulnerable state made me just so full of love and empathy for them. I was like, oh God, I wish I was there just to pick them up, take them away <laughs> and look after them. And then anyway, the next episode comes around and then Aussie's getting up and walking away from their partner and I'm pissed off at them again. But it is funny how like it fluctuates. But I think a, a really good example of kind of what you're talking about before, like in your job and the way that you have to approach your employees in social work, it's, and in my previous organization, almost everyone was like a heart thinker because no one would be doing the work doing this level of stress and trauma and subjecting themselves to that and abuse if they weren't heart thinkers and they weren't led by their heart. Um, And everyone has been abused in that industry, whether it be verbally at least (laughs) or physically like me many a time. Um, But when as well as working and doing those things with the clients, a big part of it in the org- on the organizational aspect is we would have to do on average maybe at least 100 pages of report writing a week. And if you literally just think about how many pages 100 pages is, it is so much report writing. And all the time my staff were pushing back to me and then I'd be pushing up to the CEO being like, this is completely unmanageable. It's way too much work on top of seeing clients, working with the families to write this many pages. If we went and saw a client in their home, the report that comes afterwards is 12 pages just to visit a client. Even if you're there for 20 minutes, it's 12 pages. It's crazy. And you have to meet every single criteria and answer to every single thing. And if there's not enough information in it, me as like the man, the team leader would have to send it back and be like, I need you to fill this out more. And that was my role, which is really hard. And so we'd always be pushing back. And I was always torn between the two being a team leader organization versus team needs. And basically they, the first approach they took, they had this meeting where they were like, this is the law and legislation of child protection and um, children's protective rights, their act, blah, blah, blah. You ha- you're obligated to complete this information. And if you're employed here, this is what you have to do. If you want to remain employed here and you want to be working this job and you want to be earning this salary, which is above most in like this field, then this is the responsibility you have to take on. Um, and then everyone was furious at that, like completely invalidated. So then a few weeks later, we went back and I did a workshop about how this, the the reports that we write is the story that the child will receive when they become an adult and when they're 18 and that they're going to have a lot of clouded information. They're going to have 
a lot of judgment. They're going to have a lot of potentially shame, um, sense of abandonment and our words and the way that we write about the children is going to fill those gaps for them to see that what support was provided for them, what their interests were in that time. You know, it feels silly to talk and spend a page writing about what their favorite toy is or who their friend is and what they played with on the weekend. But that is going to be the child's memory. And it was amazing, like days within days, Everyone was back on board with writing all this paperwork and doing all these things because it had pulled at their heartstrings, being like, this isn't for the organization, this isn't for law and legislation, this is for the children. Hmm. Um, so it's funny how like with different agencies or organizations and when like Adrian, he's a site manager and he's a tradie and he was talking about how like one of his um, employees – Oh yeah, please. It's like really like kind of dragging the feet, not loving everything, um, feeling a bit like invalidated because the work's hard. And instead of Adrian being like, yeah, I know it's hard, man. He's like, this is a fucking job, man. Like do your job or don't do it. Like, I don't care. Just make up your mind. If you're going to be in this position, you got to do this job. Like completely just facts, logic. And that's what works for them, um, but very different for what works in like an organization like health and um, social work. And think about like nurses and teachers as well, like how much of time, especially nurses, have to go through and put into and what they endure and are subjected to is so crazy and so much. And they wouldn't do that being like, well, logically this, you know, will earn me a really good living in a life. No, they're doing it out of like, in most cases, passion and empathy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Absolutely. it's interesting. People need a compelling emotional narrative to accompany their yeah. oftentimes suffering. And well said, you yeah. You see this in, say, with some of the new figures that have been appealing to young men. You think, well, why is this person in particular, resonated with so many people because it's not like he's saying anything really new or unique. But I think a large part of it is also the validation I think some men feel when they hear, say, a Jordan Peterson saying, you know, like this is how the modern world is is telling you to be nihilistic and, you know, this is where you might have experienced certain emotions and this is why you should take responsibility and, and you know, do X, Y, Z or, mm. I mean, even, even uh, I, f- I found it surprising, but I went onto this forum where there are a lot of people who were fans of Andrew Tate and they were saying things like, oh, he helped me change my life. He helped me turn my life around. And I thought, well, look, there's, there's so many uh, male speakers out there that are talking about responsibility and building a business and all these sorts of things. What was it about him specifically? Because it's accompanied with quite a toxic narrative. Mm. And the best ex- best conclusion I could come to was, okay, a lot of these guys may have had bad experiences with women and maybe that's from, from their mother or like, or they are actually beholden to these ideas that we now see as archaic and they felt emotionally validated with his uh yeah. his expression of that that common experience and then when he said now this is how you can also mm. better yourself that's what resonated with them and so uh, you know self help never really worked with me i thought it was a bit cliche and cringeworthy 
Uh, but then when, when yeah, like a J- Jordan Peterson talks about self-help c- concepts, but he sort of accompanies it with a more of an intellectual narrative and that really resonated with me and that mm. was something that uh, as more of a head thinker but still with a definitely with a heart component, it ticked both boxes and mm. that's the best exp- explanation I could come up with when, you know, I thought, oh, what? You know, there's so many motivational gurus and people talking about these things. What what was it about that specific person? Um, yeah. And that that point of validation is so important. Every human being, I don't I don't think it's just a heart thinkers thing. I think heart thinkers yeah. maybe have more of a need for it, but everyone needs to feel like their experiences are seen, are being validated, valid. and yeah. then also their uh, ideas. Maybe with a head thinker, it's more um, their ideas as well. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to agree hands down, but if you can acknowledge that they've come to a certain conclusion and then, like you said, with someone who you might feel has done the wrong thing, uh, a light challenge, a sort of respectful challenge or something like that with someone who might have come to some conclusion using their head. And then the other point of conflict I thought of when you were when you were talking earlier, there was the... when people have conflicting narratives because it can completely change the reality of a situation. And, you know, how many court cases are people saying, oh, yeah. I did this, but that's because you did X, Y, Z. Yeah, but I'm the one who's hard done by. No, I'm the one who's hard done by. And there's no actual objective truth there. It's just both parties engaged in some sort of uh, behavior that they felt was justified. And, you know, one one said something, some horrible verbal things to someone on the street and uh, you know this is bl- uh, bloke one and then bloke two thought it was justification to punch them and so you think well, well who's in the right here like who do we actually validate more than the other and whose uh version of events do we validate the most there and yeah i know i keep coming back to that but that just it's something i uh find really at times frustrating but also uh interesting how we're almost designed to come up with our own narratives about the world. Like I, I had listened to this podcast the other day, one of the Sam Harris ones, and it was a neuroscientist talking about how we don't actually see the world as it is. Our eyes are not a perfect camera. What we do is ha- we have a simulation of the world and then our eyes basically just map that simulation onto the world. Yeah. And that is so fascinating because the implications of that are we're not actually seeing reality as it is. We're seeing reality in a way that is self-serving. And I think we have an emotional view of this sometimes, not always, but we, we can have an emotional view of this where if we've experienced a traumatic breakup, rather than us, rather than our subconscious acknowledging that we're just this imperfect person or sometimes even a person who wasn't worthy of the other person's love, we construct a narrative that gives us a little bit of peace and, and contentment in that moment, which says, okay, uh, either I've been completely hard done by or, you know, it was it was 50-50 as to, you know, we both did some bad things and it was just a messy relationship or something like that. And I think that's actually advantageous even from like a basic evolutionary point of view because in the humans are obviously extraordinarily social beings and if we can always be looking to 
not never take accountability per se, but thinking about ways in which, well, developing narratives of the of the world and the people around us that are self-serving, there's an obvious evolutionary advantage to that. You know, we can probably climb more social hierarchies that way and maybe even attract more mates, who knows? Uh, but then if it's not done well, it gets found out very easily. And those, that's, you know, you're not classic case of narcissism or something like that. But I just, uh, you know, I'm, I know I'm rambling a bit here, but I just find that just the phenomenon of, of um, different narratives and those conflicting narratives to be so interesting, but also so intrinsic to the human condition. I mean, how many wars have been started because one country is like, oh, you know, you're being unfair to us. And the other country's like, no, nah, you're actually being unfair to us. All right, let's go kill each other. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's extremely interesting. And I wonder if society needs all those energies. It needs a certain energy of head thinkers in there and it needs a certain amount of heart thinkers in there. Within each person, you need to, you need to be able to integrate both of those facets into your identity uh, maybe in a in a in a tribe of fifty to a hundred people, it just that tribe was naturally inclined to find those energies some way, shape, or form. So maybe if there was a group of males there that were all too far onto the head thinking um, side of things, there were there were maybe a few other males that came out and then at, at just as a natural force, almost as a this like uniform Balance. rule of the of you know human society, they just were attracted to more heart thinking um perspectives of the of the world and and you can almost see that in the pendulum swing of culture can't you because say there's you know the hippie movement and then after that there's a much more rigid or, or ordered movement of you know neoliberalism and then there's this constant you know the social justice kind of thing and then this thing oh, and it's true. just this constant back and forth pendulum swing yin and yang of uh, the energies of uh humanity and yeah, yeah i think just uh, one, nature one wanting last, to bring everything in balance yeah it could be nature yeah yeah nature and, the, and uh, as hippie as it may sound the universe trying to balance everything out and mm. i think if you're open to the fact that you could be wrong that's um a really powerful thing because then you don't you don't you know if people are going to challenge you or something as long as it's done in a respectful way you're then immune to your narratives becoming completely self-absorbed because, uh, you know, there's times in, in my life where I didn't want to um, engage in people's constructive criticism uh, and that sort of hurt me in the long run. So, you know, now I, I, I like to think I'm very open to um, criticism so long as it's constructive and delivered in a respectful way. But, yeah. Um, so what's Andrea? Is she a heart thinker or a head thinker? I think she's a, a bit of both. I don't know. I don't think she's either way. She's very empathetic. Um, so maybe more heart, but I don't look, I don't think it's a, yeah, I don't think it's a binary. Um, I think yeah. everyone has a bit of both. And then depending on your experiences, you could probably, you know, there's a, there's a, socially influenced element to that without a doubt uh but and also totally forgot to mention as well like neurodivergency which may lead you to be 
completely on one end of the spectrum where you're not understanding um, specific mechanisms or emotions or responses and you need to know what makes sense and use pure logic to understand, okay, this person may be upset because of this rather than, you know, reading expressions or on the other side, like, so a lot of women with autism have extreme levels of empathy, like highly, highly empathetic. And a lot of women with autism I know have a vegan, um, passionate about animals, social justice, um, extremely, extremely on this end of the, the other end of the spectrum leaning by heart. So I think that that's another like completely new um, aspect as well is neurodivergency might put like the real extreme ends of those spectrums where it can be, make it not always possible for everyone to find that balance and or learn that balance. It might not be within everyone's reach to be like, I can balance these two out and integrate them as well. So it's about like, how does this impact your life? Is it negatively impacting your life? Do you need to learn with more proper weight, like strategies in order to integrate that? And do you understand if that needs to be integrated as well? Like for anyone, not just neurodivergent people as well. Um, but it's also one of those concepts. It's like not many people are going to think deeply about that. Not many people are going to in their self-reflections be like, I'm too much of a heart person. I should be a head person. This is what I'm going to do or vice versa. I feel like that's not something that's often on the forefront of people's mind. And maybe, maybe it should be, or maybe it's not that deep. Like I, it's interesting. It's, it could be either way. And it's like, well, is it, is it head versus heart or is it, you know, nature versus nurture? Is it personality? Is it, is it neurodivergency or neurotypicalness? Like it's, there's so many elements to it that which make it really like interesting and fascinating. And I was watching this video just before um, and it kind of like almost says, not so much says the opposite, but like a little bit to the left of what that book you read said that, which was, you know, women are more led by empathy and men are more systematic. And this video I was watching was saying that women are all about outcomes. And this is just, I don't know if this is backed by anything. And men are all about intention. So men might say, well, yeah, this happened, but I didn't intend for that. I didn't intend to hurt your feelings. I didn't intend to do this like it counts for everything to say like this was my intention and women are like I don't care about if you didn't if you intended to or not that doesn't mean shit you did this like you completed this action or or whatever or this is the way this is the outcome for this now I'm pissed off now I'm betrayed now I'm upset which is an interesting kind of conflict to that because you'd feel like intention leans more towards empathy and um, outcome leans more towards systems yeah, it's an interesting food for thought. <laughs> it's interesting, and that's uh, that. Yeah. I can definitely that relate sense to me. that. Yeah, yeah, I can relate yeah. to that because, and there's a tension there because sometimes you may not have the intention to physically hurt someone, but your actions might have done that. You could have been drunk or something like that, and yeah, you know, you still need to be obviously held accountable. When it comes to words, that's where you get into the gray area. Um. Mm. And yeah, people have very it, it can it can lead to really uh, intense points of conflict where someone is hell bent on getting across that their intention wasn't to upset someone, and the other person is just feeling invalidated because they're 
um, experience of being upset is not being acknowledged. And yeah. it can just cause end of the world fights in relationships. And I don't even think this is just an interpersonal phenomenon. I, I, I think so much of this can be related to the, the current discourse on, on politics and culture. And the other thing is that um, people who are heart thinkers and, and lead with empathy are usually more incentivized to talk about their experiences of pain and hardship. Yeah. And so you might get a skewed view of what people who are head thinkers actually endure. And that's something head thinkers need to think about. If you're even if you systemize it, you think, well, okay, there's a certain portion of the population that um interpret things far more emotionally. It makes rational sense to then uh learn how to communicate in a more emotionally feasible way. Uh but I I I now look at so many, you know, discussions online or on YouTube or in, in the cultural zeitgeist and I can't help but put this this simulation onto it. I, I, I just see it as, okay, that person there is talking from the heart, that person there is talking from the head. They both now hate each other mm. because they're not listening to each other and they're arguing from, from different foundations here. This is never going to get anywhere. And, you know, you can construct a whole sense of identity around um, certain ideas you have and then if people are disagreeing with those ideas that that feels like a personal attack because you've 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 made that identity enmeshed with your ideas um mm. and yeah i find it i find it i'm i'm so fascinated by it i think um it's just a really interesting way to view everything and i and i do I, wonder come back to what i said i really do wonder if this kind of some people in their youth playing a lot of video games and some people being on social media a lot is just furthering the rift and dividing people even more. Definitely. Um, I think like a point I want to touch on as well before we wrap up is that we often talk about women and empathy and men and empathy, et cetera. And I feel like it's important to state just so that it, you know, it's clear that everyone, almost everyone actually has empathy. And I don't want men to listen to this being like, I'm a man. I, I have limited or less empathy. More, some people, some men have way more empathy than women. You know, it's all spectrum, et cetera. And some people are more tended to lead with their empathy, but almost everyone has empathy and empathy has like amazing influential power like you've talked about on social media and the current affair and things like that the movement that empathy takes like all our massive movements for gay right black rights you know all these things comes from a place often of empathy and there's this one um tiktoker i follow and his name is jimmy darts and he goes around to people that may look like they could be like having a bad day or maybe in need and he tries to get them to engage in like a game or something like, hey, can you throw this ball with me? And if they engage with them, he gives them $500 cash or $1,000 cash. And they often like have like this big emotional response and they say like, I really needed this. I just lost my home, blah, blah, blah. And every single day he has, he puts up a GoFundMe for that person, whoever he went to that day. And every single day there's like $100,000 of donations per day for one person 
And it's like, you know, logically you could think, well, there's a lot of homeless people in America, but it's they're sold on the story and they want to give their money to that specific person and knowing like that person's completely their life is completely changed now. And this is because of one TikToker who is making himself famous via eliciting empathy for others. And he's doing amazing work, obviously. But it's really interesting to see, like, he must at this point have had millions and millions of donations from people just being like, I really like that man <laughs> in that one 30-second video. Let's change his life. It's interesting because, yeah, that's – um. You're absolutely right. There's nothing more powerful than a story that can connect with people's emotions. That's what a great film is. That's what a great yeah any kind of story is. Um, another thing I, I thought was interesting was there was this YouTuber. He's definitely on the on the left side of things who was talking about this other movement called effective altruism. Now, I think if you're mm. if you're in the veganism sphere, you might know about this. But basically, effective altruism is about rationally ascertaining where your charitable donations will have the most yeah. impact. So uh, you could give $20 to a homeless person in Australia or that $20 could buy 10 malaria nets for people in um, Africa somewhere and you're doing more good there. Now this mm-hmm. person, this YouTuber was saying, well, just because something might be have more effect you know, if you're, if you see a homeless person, you need to give that, you know, you need to have that human connection with them. But then this was where I thought, okay, this is a perfect head versus heart conflict because mm. I think, you know, no, actually, uh, that then becomes more about you, you wanting to feel a sense of compassion by giving the money to the homeless person when that $20 could do more good in the world by donating to, you know, and, and this obviously isn't a perfect example because there'd be fees and whatever and, you know, to, how much is that, $20 by the time it gets there. But um, to me, th- that's that's another, that's also an example of where heart thinkers could think a head thinker is, is lacking empathy and coming across as cold and uh, unloving when if I put myself in that position of being someone who'd be more inclined to, do the effective altruism route, I would think that of the other person. I would think, well, actually, you're doing less good here. And I'm, you know, by mm. by this systemizing measure, I'm actually, there's more good being done in the world. So, um, mm. you know, I think that's also another one where intentions come into it. Uh, the intention of both people would be good enough there where you shouldn't really, you know, why criticize anyone there. But uh, so interesting, so interesting. And then, and then, not only that, then people can say, "All right, well, to care about homeless people, you have to agree with the the only when a political party comes out and says we care about homeless people." Um, and here's an, an ad where we're you know showing you a homeless person and giving them a home and and tugging at your emotions. Whereas another party might say, "Well, we care about them too, but with through this different." policy or something and then you know mm. who's actually doing more the one that's appealing more to the emotions or the one that's not necessarily appealing to the emotions but uh may have a, a more substantial impact and you know i think i think if, if this podcast is probably articulating anything it's that if you if you if you perceive yourself to be more of a head thinker or a heart thinker 
think about that in itself and think about what the other person's motivations or uh, needs might be in a given moment and, you know. Yeah, because then you go down this whole other, like, avenue as well as, like, are we as humans truly altruistic or are we selfish because people want to donate to people because it, like the homeless person on the street because it might actually make them feel good or validate or we know that when signing up or getting donations is way more effective when someone gets something in return, even if it's a rubber band that goes around your wrist. So it's this whole other element like, well, if I donate online, I never even see where that goes. But if I give that $20 to someone in person, I will get that emotional, you know, the the feedback and the validation from that as well and see the response and see where it goes. So I mean, that's a podcast for another day, it I guess. Is. Yeah, we could probably go yeah. um, for hours on this. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we'll 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 end it there. And I I really enjoyed that one. I hope you guys did too. And uh, any any final thoughts? No, my um my brain hurts <laughs> <laughs> in a good way, <laughs> but it does. Yeah. <laughs> I need right. a nap. Um, share this podcast if you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts uh, if you're on YouTube watching this, and follow us on Instagram, on TikTok. Come to a comedy show, comedyuntamed.com. We've got shows in Sydney, Melbourne, Geelong, Brisbane, and Newcastle. And Wagga Wagga, there's a show on in Wagga Wagga. Oh, actually, there's one last thing. I've been meaning to do this for a few podcasts, but a few weeks ago we did the waifuism episode and someone just added some extra information about waifuism, which um, they thought, you know, people might want to hear. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to read some of that email out. Uh, so we generally discuss people who fall in love with inanimate objects or concepts of a character, which is what waifuism, the, the sort of waifuism we were talking about and and they've said but another part of wife wisdom or perhaps a whole other culture sharing the name of people who choose to adopt this same waifu energy <laughs> that the people you discussed in the episode fall in love with there's many tropes associated with waifu culture in general that people fall in love with or choose to adopt for example the dash uh d-e-r-e yandiri tsundere etc pronounced oh yandare okay i got that wrong tsundare for example um, waifuism is in fact a gendered culture. The femme form is, of course, waifu based on the word wife. The masculine form is husbando. <laughs> For some reason, I just think of Zorro or, or like Antonio Banderas when I hear husbando, <laughs> which is naturally based on the word husband. Yeah, so, uh, uh, okay. Service level culture where most people reside claiming a character as your husbando or waifu just means that it was your favorite character from the source material or the character you believe would be the most wife material if they were real. So just a bit of added information from that um, podcast we did a few weeks ago. That's interesting as well because, I mean, I come, I came across the husbandry stuff on, a lot online as well, but he, him saying um, it's just like wifey material but when I'm on this on the waifuism subreddit, it is literally like I have had a ceremony to marry this person and I've asked the creator of this animator if I have permission and consent and this is how I consummate my marriage, this is how I make love to them, this is how we communicate, this is their favorite. Like it, there is, yeah, I feel like there's obviously a lot of levels to it. Yeah. <laughs> a well, lot of absolutely. levels. Yeah. 
But yeah, very fascinating. So fascinating, and thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think now, um, now we'll end that one. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it, and yeah, we'll see you next week. Share this podcast see you next if week. you can, and leave us a review if you liked the podcast. That is, if you didn't, then just avoid doing that. And we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.